How are y'all doing this morning? I want to open with a question that we'll come back to, hopefully not too much later, because I do want to get you to lunchtime, but think for a second, who is your neighbor? Think about that. Maybe come up with a couple faces, a couple names in your mind. Who is your neighbor? Grab that, put that in your pocket for later. We'll arrive towards the end of this message. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you're doing in this place. Lord, I pray that you will prepare our hearts. Lord, fill my mouth with only your words and shut my mouth with anything that's mine. Lord, I pray that, that people will forget who gave this message, but your words will burn in our hearts, in our minds. They'll echo in our ears, and you will transform your people from the inside out through the washing of your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for your church. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. There was a young man living in Mali, a young Muslim man, who came down with tuberculosis. And his family, being nomads, left him to die in the desert, where he was found by Catholic nuns and begun to be nursed back to health. They took him to the capital city, and while there, still in recovery, commuting from the hospital, he started going to college. And while this young man was in college, he ran into a guy named Musa. I think that's the best way that I can translate it. I read the story. But his name was Musa. And Musa learned that this young man, after being taken care of by the nuns, had learned that the nuns did this for nothing. They just wanted to help him when they found him in the desert. And so he converted to Christianity. Well, Musa wanted to help him too. Musa believed that his heart was on the risk, that he was risking eternal damnation. So Musa took a gun and visited him in his hospital room the next day. Allow that to begin to set the context for the world that the people are living in that Peter is writing to. Because they're living in that same kind of pressure and persecution. Nero is ruling the world, the known world at this time. Nero, who was tutored by the pedophile Seneca, whose own mother murdered his older stepbrother, ensuring him the throne. Nero, who would later have that mother executed for treason. Who would have his own wife beheaded, her head put on display as a gift to his mistress. Nero, a psychotic madman who is ruling everything, and then this fire breaks out in Rome and devastates the city, impoverishing the population, and Nero needed someone to blame. The historian writing at that time, Suetonius, believed that Nero not only started the fire, but played the lyre and sang the sacking of Troy in the glow of its flames. Another Roman historian named Tacitus lived through the tragedy, and he wrote this about Nero needing to pin the blame somewhere else. 
But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, and the appeasement of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the fire had been started deliberately. Consequently, to stop the rumor, Nero made scapegoats and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. In spite of this temporary setback, that mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of firing the city, but why? Because of the crime of hatred against mankind. Their deaths were made amusing. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs, or were nailed to crosses, or made into torches to be set on fire after dark as illumination, when daylight had expired. Peter is writing a letter to the very people who this persecution scattered to save their own lives into the surrounding nations. Wouldn't that kind of cool to see an extra biblical source that talks about the death of Jesus? I just thought that was awesome. But these people have been scattered. This is their livelihood. And so they're living in places that are not their home. And they're living day and night worried about their livelihood. So Peter takes an opportunity. He takes the opportunity to teach them that not only are they exiles physically living in a land that isn't their land. But they're actually in reality exiles spiritually living in a world of darkness that does not belong to their true citizenship. Their true identity. That God has given them gifts. That God has changed their identity. They have been transformed into new citizens. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Further, he encourages them that believers that live out their identity will see something happen. That world of darkness that they're living in will actually change because of their citizenship. Let's go to the text. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race. Any amens for that? Boy, this is some of the richest text. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, what did he do? He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you are now God's people. Once you did not have mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The Gentiles represent unbelievers. 
Keep your, uh, your conduct among them honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I'd like to unpack these verses, and if you'll give me the leeway, I'd like to do it a little bit out of order for a path of thought. Peter is teaching us that there is this beautiful relationship between God and his people and between his people and the world around them. And he's going to actually work through them. Peter identifies two problems. I'm going to begin with the problems. Here is what is up front. Here is the pressure that they're under. And then he encourages them by reminding them of the gifts God has given them. The kind of gifts that outweigh any external external pressures or circumstances. But those gifts aren't gifts alone. They're actually a gateway. They're a doorway. They make possible their new identity. A new identity with four aspects. Four aspects, kind of like a basketball player. When he goes on the court, he is a dribbler, a shooter, a defender. He has multiple aspects of what he is doing out there on the court. But then... They don't just have gifts. They don't just have a new identity. But he gives them commands to go out and make a difference. They have a purpose. They have a directive. And to keep the sports analogy, kind of like a football player, when he gets on the field, he knows his position. His position has very specific direction and purpose, right? And then, the best part of all, if they will live out their identity, something crazy might happen. God just might show up. God just might show off if they will be faithful to their purpose. So the two problems that he points out are one, they have people speaking against them as evildoers, slandering them, bad-mouthing them. Listen to some of the words from Tacitus. Abomination, mischievous, shameful, hatred against mankind. This is what's being said about them right now. They're being painted in this terrible lighting. During Nero's reign, Christians were accused of cannibalism, incest, disrupting public business, insurrection, and even causing disasters. The Christian historian and philosopher theologian named Tertullian sarcastically wrote this. If Tiber reaches the walls, if the Nile does not rise up to the fields, if the sky does not move or the earth does, if there is a famine or a plague, the cry is at once, the Christians to the lions. Because any excuse they could find, they were persecuting the Christians. Of course, they're feeling like foreigners. They're out of their their comfort zone. They're in a whole new place. And there's this kind of pressure crushing down on them. What are Christians today accused of? What kind of labels get put on us? Bigots, sexists, haters. I mean, isn't that one of the things that the Romans were saying about Christians? Haters of mankind. Nothing's changed. The second thing that that he points out, the second problem that they're dealing with, they have an external problem, but maybe even more of a saboteur is the internal problem. That there is a war waged against their souls. And I love that strong language, a war waged against their souls. Think about war, the hatred, the brutality. It's never ending In the trenches, constantly under fire, constantly under pressure, constantly in fear. Someone over there wants to kill you. And I'm telling you, 
Our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. And he wants you. And he wants me. So they have this external pressure and they have internal pressure. These are the realities that the people that Peter loves are living in. And so Peter, to encourage them, goes back to very familiar, very cherished Old Testament scriptures to bring light to what God is doing. You see, Peter is completely convinced that the promises of God for the Jewish nation, his choosing them and picking them out to put his blessing, his hand of favor on them, completely applies to the followers of Jesus, be they Jewish or Gentile. He absolutely believes that those who have given their hearts to Christ come underneath those same promises and same favor of all the promises that God had given them. And so he talks about the gifts of God, the gifts of God that God had given Israel that now apply to new Israel. I love this. He says that he called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Gift number one called out. You see, for us, that's like, hey! Hey! But for them, those words called out mean so much more. For them, they remember vividly the stories they grew up on of when Moses called them out of Egypt. Of when Zerubbabel, don't say that three times fast. You're trying to right now. I'll wait till you're done. Of when Zerubbabel called them out of Babylon, when God called his people from slavery, from bondage, from hopelessness into freedom. And he called them, the called out ones, from darkness into light. You see, darkness throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, always represents ignorance, ignorance and blindness to God. Think about God. Whenever he shows up on Sinai, he's in glowing light and fire, right? Moses goes up, stands in his presence, and when he comes back, his skin is glowing. Because God is always represented by light. In Isaiah, it says that in the new kingdom, there will no longer be a sun. Why? Because God is sufficient. The sun is superfluous in the light of God. Wow. Malachi says that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be the son, S-U-N, of righteousness. God is always represented by this light. Jesus taught the difference between darkness and light as ignorance and blindness versus the knowledge of God. And John picks up on this throughout his gospel. Think about John when it says that the light came to men and the light was the knowledge of God. It was, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And just think of Peter's personal account on the Mount of Transfiguration. When they were surrounded by light. God has called them out of blindness and ignorance, sin, into God's glorious light, into the knowledge of him, the saving knowledge of him. So God's first gift that he gives to his people, it is he sets them free from slavery and ignorance, and he gives them the knowledge, saving knowledge of him. The second gift that he gives them, Peter points out, and I was really excited. Like, I, my head like popped off my pillow to share this with you this morning. He says that you are not a people. Now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word redemption 
means that something has been taken and you have to come up with the costs to purchase it back. Kind of think like a pawn shop. Like maybe you had to sell something to try to pay bills, but you've gathered enough money to go purchase back what belongs to you, right? You see, this language is not something Peter is making up off the top of his head. He's actually referring to a very cherished, very well-known story that they all grew up knowing. It's the story of Hosea. Do you all remember what happened to him? He was a prophet of God. And God decided to use his life, his marriage, as a metaphor of what God, of, of God's experience with Israel. Israel, just like Hosea's prostitute wife, had betrayed him and chased after other lovers. And God gave Hosea and his wife Gomer three children. The first one, and I'm not going to use the Hebrew names because I would totally misspell it, but I'll share the meaning with you. The first one comes with a promise. His name means God will sow, as in to plant, not like a needle pulling thread. God will sow, he will plant, as in we are looking down the barrel of punishment. God's people have betrayed him for, for idols, and he is about to lay the smack down. He's about to bring Babylon and Assyria, and they're going to bring punishment. But God's not done. There will become the time when he will raise again. It will be like he is planting seeds for new Israel. Look at the second child. His name means, gives me shivers. The second child was a daughter, and God had Hosea name her No mercy. Because they are looking down the barrel of punishment. And God is saying, you and your rebellion have pushed so long and so hard against me that I am removing my mercy from you. You will have no mercy from me when I bring my judgment. And the third was a son that God named harsher still, not my people And he says, for I am no longer your God. I can't think of a more terrifying thought. It's one thing for God to say, I'm going to punish you without any sort of pulling my punches. It's another one entirely for God to say, I am no longer your God. That's damnation. That is hopelessness. That is the God who Moses said, we are not moving from this place. We will not go into the land of Israel unless you go before us. And God says, I'm done. You are no longer my people. Through Hosea, God foretells how their unrepentant rebellion would be punished with the removal of God's protection, blessings, and grace. He was turning them over to their own sin entirely. As expected, Hosea's wife was unfaithful. And she went, and her unfaithfulness and her adultery was so deep and so depraved that she actually found herself as a slave put up to be sold. And God asked Hosea to do something else incredible. He told him to go. I just want to read it. Hosea 3.1. And Yahweh God said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. He realized what's happening. In your rebellion, biting And snipping at me, I choose to love you anyway. Who is like her God? 
And God continues. I will betroth you to me. I want you to know this is coming on the heels of a long portion of God talking about how bad their, their punishment will be. But there is hope because God will sow. Listen to this. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know Yahweh. There's that knowledge of God. And I will have mercy on no mercy. You have earned the nickname no mercy. I'm going to have mercy on you. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And you're going to say back to me, you are my God. So Peter isn't coming up with this off the top of his head. He is talking to people who have been called out of darkness, out of slavery, purchased just like Gomer, loved just like Gomer. And he has brought them to have mercy and to be his people when they had no deserving of it. When they were in active rebellion, Peter's going, remember who you are. Remember the gifts that God has given you. Yes, the persecution is crushing. Yes, your sin is coming back for you. But you need to remember that God has delivered you from this. If you died right now, who cares? You are in the hands of a God that calls you his people. Oh, I'm being Pastor Freddie now. What a God we serve. What an incredible God we serve. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. The gifts, the knowledge of him, and the freedom from slavery. The third gift God gives his people is a new identity. Pastor Matt discussed this beautifully last week. He talked about that as the temple, we are the place of God's manifest presence. Think about that. God built us up like living stones to be his temple. Me and you, we are the place of God's manifest presence on earth. I can't even wrap my mind around that. But it doesn't stop there. 1 Peter 2.5, we ourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood for the purpose of offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is echoing, again, Scriptures that they know, Exodus 19, 5-6. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Sound familiar? God gives us the new identity of priest. Everyone in this room Before God, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, he has called you a priest. It's not designated for pastors. You are a part of the holy priesthood. You are the living stone on which God is building up his spiritual house. Not only are you the place where God's presence dwells, but you are actually an active mediator. This is what a priest would do between God's presence and the world around you. You are a priest. The knowledge of God. Do you all remember the second one? The knowledge of God, freedom from slavery, and your priest. Usually I get feedback from Elevate. We talk back and forth sometimes. Amen. Now as priests, like I mentioned, there are four aspects to that. 
It's so beautiful. And it's all coming from the Old Testament. First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I want you to soak in this for just a second. I want you to, I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. Think about this. I would like you to say, I am chosen. Hey, I am royal. I am holy. I am his. Soak that for a second. What a God we serve. I had a teacher who told the story about how his family adopted a young boy. And they brought him home, and this was their first dinner together, was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Celebratory meals. And he, per normal, everyone got, got their chicken. And as they're eating, something caught his ear, and he realized he heard a crunching sound. And when they He looked over to the new boy. He was sitting there chewing the bone of the chicken leg to get the marrow out. You see, this boy was not raised in a family like his. He said, son, why are you chewing the bone? He's like, come here, come here, son. See everything in this refrigerator? It belongs to you now. You see these doors and these windows in this home? It belongs to you now. You see at this table? Come here. And he took a chicken leg out and he put it on his plate. And then another one, another one, until he'd emptied the entire bucket of chicken onto the kid's plate. Son, this is yours now. Why? Because you carry my name. Living Word Church, you carry the very name of God with you. That's why it's so critical that we don't carry it in vain. You have a new identity. Are you living in your new identity? Because God has these incredible gifts And so many of us are sitting chewing the bone when God's going, I've got so much more for you. I've got purpose for you. I have gifts for you. I have these beautiful assignments. You're holy. You're mine. You have my name. Peter Peter is purposely pulling from Exodus 19 that we just read. And he's also pulling from Deuteronomy 7. Listen, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I chose you to put my name on you. A chosen race. Race here means a physical lineage or genealogy. The idea is that As believers in Christ, they come under the identity, the genealogy of Abraham, God's chosen people. Gentile or not, they are now in the heritage of promises in favor of Abraham. 1 Chronicles 17, 21. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem his people? They are the new Israel. And no matter how scattered they are, they still belong to that family. A holy nation, holy meaning set apart, other, different than, I bet they're feeling it now as exiles. They're a holy nation. They're called out. Actually, in the first chapter of Peter, he says this, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We are citizens of a kingdom that is different than the world around us. 
I love the story of a young man in our youth group. I won't use my name because I don't want to embarrass him. But he's told me on two different occasions that the people at school know that he's a Christian simply because, because he doesn't curse. Because he doesn't use cuss words. How simple. But his language is holy. What comes out of his mouth is set apart and different from the world around him. In darkness, they can tell he's different. And we are called to be a holy nation. A people for his own treasured possession. Think about this. I never knew this before. The idea of the treasured possession is coming from the idea of an eastern king. And that king, there's like the royal treasury. This is what the government pulls from. This is what the nation uses. But that king would also have his own treasure stash that belonged only and specifically to him. And the stash was totally for whatever he wants. It was his to use as he felt fit. It belonged personally to him. And this is what he's saying, that God has set you aside for himself. But there's also the understanding that we are completely at his will, used for whatever his desires are. Malachi 3.17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. He shows his affection towards us. He treasures us. Deuteronomy 32.9 says that we are Yahweh's portion. That Yahweh's portion is his people. Like, that's crazy. That we are his inheritance? Like, who are we? What do we got? That we, he would want. And yet, we belong to him. In a royal priesthood, we are priests belonging to a king. That's what makes us royal. So it's not about that we have any great authority. It's, it's our position with our king as our father. Like, that's just crazy. But what, is, what does a priest do? They do four things. Number one, they have the right of access to God. They offer up sacrifices. They are conduits between God and people. And fourth, they offer up praises in his temple. So how do each of these apply to us? Oh, so great. We have the right to stand in his presence, according to Hebrews chapter 4. We give ourselves entirely to him. Romans 12 says that we present our bodies as living sacrifices, and this is pleasing to God. We conduct ourselves, we are conduits between God and the lost around us. Matthew 28. You see, before they offered praises in his temple, but now we offer praises as his temple. Isn't that crazy? That's so beautiful. And so we have a purpose. As priests, as this third gift of God, we have an assignment. We have a directive. We have a purpose. That is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. The first natural outcome. The first thing that happens is a byproduct naturally because we walk in our identity and that we live lifestyles of worship. That we can't live with ourselves unless we're just excited about who God is. Unless somebody around us knows that my life has been changed. That things are, are, are seeing, I'm seeing things differently. I can't even get words out. Like, do you, do you know that something is different in me? Can I introduce you to peace? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. I remember as a kid, I was probably 17 or 18. 
my parents got remarried to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. And if you were here, the, the last time I spoke, I gave just sort of like a thumbnail that uh, my parents did inner city youth ministry. And so all my friends were like gang members and prostitutes and drug dealers and car thieves. Like this was my life. You know, I'd wake up and we'd see the, the paper and had the police beat of all the arrests. And I'd be like, hey, he's out. Or, oh, he was stealing cars again. I told him. Like that was how I grew up. And my parents loved these kids. It was so crazy to see these Yankee white people working with these kids that come from nothing. And so whenever my parents got remarried, it was those kids that they made their best men and their bridesmaids. And so I had the opportunity to, to take them, like three or four of them, and we went to the tuxedo rental place. I mean, these kids, like their clothes don't get washed, you know, and they, they just, they come from nothing. And to watch them figure out how to put on a boutonniere and, and how the cufflinks work and everything, and it was crazy. You'd put this new wardrobe on them, and suddenly the kid that walked like this was like this. And he'd walk around the tuxedo shop in the mirror. And he said he had this—they would take on this whole new demeanor, this whole new presence about them, this value, because they changed clothes. And God is taking this identity and he is placing it on his people, this rich, beautiful heritage of an identity. Like we should walk differently. Our chest should be just a little bit higher. We should have a little more pep in our step. His glory and love should come out of our eyes and our fingertips. It should change how we interact. Of course, we're going to proclaim his excellencies. I've got a new wardrobe. I've got a new name. I get the whole bucket of chicken now. <laughs> Isaiah 43, 20. God is speaking. He says, I give water in the wilderness, ri- rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. Peter's not making this up. Three gifts, the knowledge of him, freedom from slavery, and a new identity. And it comes with a directive. He gives us two commands to follow, which will support our new identity. And he opens with the word beloved. Think about that. He's not talking to just random strangers. He's talking to people that he loves, that obviously he has a reputation with. He opens with beloved. Let me re- I want to use this single word to remind you of our relationship, to put weight behind my words that because I care about you, it's, I'm worth listening to right now. Beloved, I urge you. You hear the concern in his voice? Beloved, I urge you. I'm begging you. Hear what I have to say. This is worth taking on board. This is worth living out. Live differently as sojourners and exiles abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is part of your citizenship of another kingdom. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which are warring against you. First Timothy says, flee from these things. Run away. Get out. Jesus talks about cut whatever that is out of your life. Be brutal with great prejudice. Get those things that cause sin out. Be Joseph and bolt. Run out of there. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Living resolute, holy lives denies and silences the flesh. Thank you, Jesus. And then he says, keep your conduct among the unbelievers honorable. 
As priests of God, we live honorably amidst our detractors. We have to. Our lives must be recognizably holy and marked with unswerving integrity. Because we're God's priests. We're the place that his presence dwells on earth. We are the conduits between his presence and everyone else that we interact with. We must have honorable, holy, set-apart lives. Every word that we speak, the thoughts that we think, and every action that we take must represent our holy God. Be holy as I am holy. And just like abstaining from the sins of the flesh silences our sin, living honorably will silence the accuser. And guess what? When we're operating on our identity, something starts to happen. Being faithful to our responsibility, there will be fruit. The second side effect that happens naturally when we are just living out our identity is that those around us will see something that brings them to glorify God. If you think that's hard to take on, think about them living with persecution. But Peter genuinely believes Jesus' words when Jesus says, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is trusting Jesus' words. Are we willing to trust his? That God will actually change the world around us when we are faithful to our identity and faithful to our calling. God makes us, I love this. Look at the, the two words, may, in this. He makes us priests so that we may proclaim his excellencies. And when we live honorably, they may give glory to God. That's so cool. They're the two natural outcomes of our new identity. When he calls us a holy priesthood. Think about this. As ambassadors of God, how cool is it that God would use their suffering to make unbelievers their next door neighbors? Soak that in a second. Their crushing pressure, the things that they're trying to get away from, the things that they, that they hurt from, and are afraid of are the very things that put them in the perfect position to be lights, to give glory to God so that they may give glory to God. Isn't that crazy? May this encourage you that no matter how bad things are, to remember God's incredible gifts. Those same gifts are why legend, the, the church tradition says that Paul ran to the chopping block when his time came. Because his life was forfeit long ago. His body was just catching up. He trusted the gifts of God, that God would give him the saving knowledge of him, that he would be set free, and that he had a new identity as a priest. He had no fear. No matter how bad things are, we can remember who we are. No matter how bad things are, we still have purpose. We still have directives. We still have commands. We can't just sit around, as Jackie says, blowing up balloons to our own pity party. We can't just sit and feel bad for ourselves. When things get tough, we still have to remember our calling and our purpose. That we abstain from sin and that we live honorably among men. And two things will naturally happen. We will live a lifestyle of worship 
and they will begin to glorify God. I learned a story of a young girl named Sherry who died when she was 19. She had spent 15 years of her 19 with brain cancer. And surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery, hospital after hospital, she lived in the hospital. That was her world. And yet Sherry didn't sit in her hospital bed and pout. Sherry was often having to be brought back from her hospital, back to her hospital room because she was visiting other kids, telling them about Jesus, laughing with them, sharing with them, bringing joy to wherever she goes. She found in her suffering, her neighbors were the people that she was called to reach. And when I learned this story from our our dear girl in our youth group, she said this, you know, sometimes the hard thing that God is calling you to do is just to be present where you are. And Sherry looked around and realized that her suffering made her neighbors with the very people God was calling her to. Are you suffering? Do you have hardship in your life? Are things coming out of the blue that are unexpected? I wonder if God is going to perfectly align you to give praises to his excellencies. The name of the man who brought a gun to the hospital room, his name was Musa. We don't have the name of that young boy. But we do know, as Musa tells the story, that when he arrived at that room with the gun, the boy said to him, I know why you're here. Can I tell you one thing first? Can I just tell you that Jesus loves you? And Musa couldn't pull the trigger. He left the room and he was in knots. He didn't know how to handle this. He kept rolling over and over in his mind. What does that mean that Jesus would love me? So he went to his uncle. Musa went to his uncle who was living in the city and sat down with his uncle and was like, I'm not sure how to process this. And his uncle said, are you a Christian? He said, I, I think so. And his uncle said, you know what? You should probably talk with, with your family about this. Why don't you go see your family? Well, Musa was from the Tareg tribe. They were kind of like gypsies. They wandered in the desert in a caravan. And so he made the trip out to see his family. Meanwhile, unknown to him, his uncle sent a messenger ahead to tell his family that he had converted to Christianity. When Musa arrived at his tribe, they whipped him, they beat him, they tied him to a horse and drug him around until they eventually tied him to a tree. And they told him he had three days on that tree until he would either convert back to Islam or they would execute him. And the night before Musa would be executed, having spent two days tied to a tree, (laughs) this guy just gave his life to Jesus. He just days before heard that Jesus even loved him. And he's suffering for his faith already. One of his relatives came and cut him loose and he ran off into the darkness. He tried to go back to the capital and go back to his classes. He slept on the park bench so he could keep going until he learned that his uncle was trying to kill him. So he found safety in a Swiss ambassador, um, embassy. And the embassy changed his name to what it is now, Musa, and changed his birthday and got him out of Mali. And today he is working as a translator in a mission to refugees in Brazil. When refugees get to Brazil, they call on Musa because Musa studied 17 languages to be able to talk to anyone. And while he is working with these exiles and refugees, he is sharing the gospel of Jesus. And because of one unnamed young man who almost was shot in his hospital room, Musa has ministered to many. 
Because one young man, when he gave his life to Jesus, was willing to walk as an exile and a foreigner in a city of darkness. The kind of city that would kill you in your hospital room. Because that young man became a neighbor to a college kid named Musa. Wow. This, little, this boy and Sherry lived out their identities as priests. And they became conduits between God and those around them. So I'd like to ask you one more time, who is your neighbor? Do you still have that person's face? Do you have their name? Who is your neighbor when the suffering gets hard? I wonder if God is asking you to live out your identity, to take hold of your responsibility, to be faithful. Recap. Peter teaches that we are all spiritual strangers in the world. The two problems we face are the persecution, external, and the internal battle with sin. Out of God's grace and love, he gives us the three gifts of the knowledge of him, freedom from slavery, and a new identity as a priest. Being God's priests means that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, and his personal treasured possession. Peter gives us two missions, abstain from sin and live honorably. And when we do these two things, naturally what will happen is that we will live a lifestyle of worship and the people around us will begin to glorify God. So here's your challenge for this coming week. Are you ready for this? I would say I, but I think this is a God thing. I'd like you to live out your priesthood by praying with someone outside your comfort zone. It's between you and God who that is. Praying with someone that's outside of your comfort zone. But I'll tell you this. I think it would be best if you prayed for them ahead of time. Pray that God will go before you in their lives, that he's already working in their hearts so that whenever you take that step outside of your comfort zone, when you get a little uncomfortable and you actually say, may I pray with you? Oh, I love that saying. Speak truth, even if your voice shakes. Whenever you are sitting there eye to eye with them. The Lord's already at work in their heart and he's already at work at your heart. Be a conduit between God's very presence and that neighbor and that person that's outside of your comfort zone. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It's amazing how incredibly your, the New Testament stands on your promises of the Old Testament. Wow, what a God we serve. Lord, I pray that we will embrace our identities and be faithful to our directives. We will abstain from the flesh and we will live honorably among men so that we will worship you with our lifestyles and they can see Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We offer up our lives to you as living sacrifices. Thank you, Lord, for our identity, our identity as priests. May we live it. And we give you these in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Love you, living word. Have a great week. Go and be priests.